Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Kinder, Kirka, Kuka, or Children, Kitchen, and Church. It's a phrase with a long history in Germany, but by the 1930s, it was pulled to the center of how the Third Reich defined the purpose of women in Nazi Germany. Womanhood, in fact, was narrowed and restricted down to one purpose, service to the Nazi state. By 1933, the Nazi party issued a list of principles for the National Socialist Women's League, which stated, quote, We reject the misguided direction of the democratic, liberalistic, international women's movement because they have not discovered new paths based on God and nationhood. We want an awakening, a renewal, and a re-education of women, a woman's entire education, development, vocational pursuit, and position within Volk and state must be directed toward the physical and spiritual task of motherhood, end quote. And in fact, in Nazi Germany, women themselves championed the subservience. Here, an actor reads what Jutta Rudiger, head of the Nazi party's League of German Girls, described as their mission in 1939. Men and women, boys and girls, must carry out their duty according to their station. Boys we raise as political soldiers, and girls as the comrades of these political soldiers. We teach them to be wives and mothers, and to breed the next generation. That's all. The rolling back of women's rights and roles in society wasn't limited to Nazi Germany. From 1934 all the way to 1975, the women's section of Spain's fascist party was the state's organizing tool with authority over women. It counted more than 680,000 members who tried to shape Spanish women into their model of the ideal woman, a Catholic, dedicated, self-sacrificing mother and obedient wife. Quote, the true duty of women to the patria is to form families, women's section founder Pilar Primo de Rivera said. What we will never do is put ourselves in competition with men. The same goes for roles and rights of women in Mussolini's Italy. In fact, defining down womanhood is a hallmark of populist ultranational movements both then and now. A 2017 UN special report on global cultural rights found that much of the contemporary assault on cultural rights emerged from populist ultranational movements that disregard key principles of equality and the universality of human rights. And one of the earliest places those rights are restricted are in the lives of women. So that's what we're going to look at today. And joining us is Anne Winginter, professor of history and women's studies at Loyola University Chicago's John Felice Rome Center, and she's with us from Rome, Italy. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Magna. Very, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I wonder, um, I'd like to focus with you, obviously, on what we can learn, uh, the lessons we can learn from Mussolini's in Italy when we think about the rights of women. But where should we start our ana- our analysis? I mean, because I feel, I feel like everything that has to do with World War II really dates, we really should look back further to, you know, even the interwar period to the end of World War One. Oh, no, absolutely. I think, I mean, we could push it back even a little further. There's a, you know, a kind of growing consensus among historians that the the Industrial Revolution causes a a kind of crisis in in masculinity that is exacerbated by the First World War, and certainly Italian fascism, which is the the area that I study most, is um, in many ways a um, a, a reaction to the, the experience of the First World War and the kind of disorder in its immediate a- aftermath. And fascism is founded in Italian fascism. The, the first fascism is 
uh, founded in 1919, so just really months after the end of uh, World War One. So tell me more then about why this crisis of masculinity informs um, Italian fascism in particular, because, of course, the, these dates that we're talking about also, um, you know, at least in the United States, uh, uh, coincide with, you know, the, the suffrage movement as well. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the, the Italian women's movement, sort of first-wave feminism in Italy, is, is really just kind of nascent mm-hmm. at the beginning of the 20th century, and Italian women are are largely without political rights when uh, when fascism emerges on the scene. Um, I think, however, and and also Italy is something of a late industrializer, so there is this kind of mm, perception of a crisis really before the the, the reality is fully taken hold. Um, that's you know sort of growing and then exacerbated by the First World War. The sense that traditional patriarchy is threatened by new patterns of labor, first with industrialization, uh, and then the war itself, you know, it, it, and, you know at, at the propagandistic level kind of exalts old images of the, the, the male warrior, of the active soldier, but the experience of World War I is largely a, a passive experience for, for men, you know, soldiers fighting as, as kind of cogs in the war machine, really not about individual heroism, but about kind of, you know, cowering in trenches until things happen to you. So I think there is, um, you know, a contribution to early fascism there, this this um, kind of deliberate attempt to evoke the, the, the more idealized vision of the soldier, mm. um, the, the division between the war front and the home front, um, in, in some ways in, in an attempt to kind of counteract what had been the reality of the war experience. Mm. So then you, you heard me um, at the beginning uh, describe a little bit about how women and womanhood was viewed in Nazi Germany, uh, in, uh, uh, under fascism in Franco Spain. Uh, how did the Italian fascists view uh, what what a woman was supposed to be? Yeah, I mean it's 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 very similar, right? Uh, you know, Mussolini's. Um you know, was was known for his kind of pithy little quotes and his on record of saying, you know, war is to man as maternity is to woman. The idea, the ideal woman in fascist Italy was, you know, the the the, the wife and mother, mother of many children, because there is a kind of demographic panic in the wake of the First World War in Italy. Uh, one who is. Um, you know, essentially this kind of patriarchal vision, but one who is at the same time dedicated to the state. So I think that's an important distinction, you know, that that's there in the in the quotes that you read, but also needs to be needs to be emphasized, right? That this is not just a an attempt to turn back the clock to. Uh, you know the 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 women's sphere at home and kind of limited to that, but it is an attempt to kind of nationalize motherhood, if you will. So the woman is supposed to be sort of subservient to men and her ideal places in the home, raising children. But those children are children for the state, right. not not for the family, not for the church, but you know for the state. Okay, so and this is really an important point because in in my in my reading of uh you know the writing and analysis regarding Nazi Germany and um Spain in particular and it sounds like it's very similar in Italy um raising children and large families for the state was 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 then couched as um sort of an exalted duty right for Absolutely. for women so it wasn't it wasn't that you will be made subservient it was that you are performing a uh, a unique duty that men men themselves cannot perform for the greatness of the state Absolutely, and this is this is the thing that attracted many of those women that you mention uh you know, for many women, this was 
seen, and you know, in, in Italy in particular, you know, some of the early um, feminism in, in Italy was uh, explicitly maternalist, right? This idea that women could be a maternal influence on society and could extend that influence into the public sphere. And, you know, many women in Italy, uh, but also in, in many of these other fascist movements and places where fascism comes to power, see this as a, a kind of recognition of their importance, even as uh, there are, you know, there are policies and laws passed to try to constrain them to a, to a limited space. Yeah, so we'll we'll definitely talk about those policies and laws because that's sort mm-hmm. of the where um, where we're wondering if we're hearing echoes today um, sure. in the United States and in other places around the world. But this idea that there was um, this view of empowered fascist women is fascinating to me, right? Because I was reading some of the the, the statements um, again of um, uh, fascist women in Spain who said that. Um, you know, they were saying there that it was a new Spanish woman emerged, brave, yeah. open, and free, uh, and, and they who also had this concept of duty. It's really fascinating to me. And in in Italy, was that was there that same um, sense? Because I have seen videos of Mussolini speaking before crowds of sixty thousand, a hundred thousand women, even. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the the thing about fascism is that it's a it's a really contradictory experience for women, and you know our our view of it will often change depending. You know, if you if you're looking at it from the top down, the picture is very simple. We know exactly what the fascists wanted from women. They never tired of saying it. Um, what's what's really complicated is trying to understand from the bottom up. That is, how did women experience those policies? Because at the same time, they're being told, you know, go home and have children, you know, so that we can, you know, build the army of the future or expand colonially or for whatever reason. But at the other, you know, at the same time, they're being mobilized to come to rallies. They have roles in public parades. Uh, they're brought to Rome to receive prizes if they have, you know, more children than anyone else in their province, right? So there is this kind of push-pull between this idea of a traditional place that they have to stay, but also this recognition, this place in the public sphere. And so women experience that in really contradictory ways. Well, Professor Anne Winginter, stand by here for just a second. We're talking about women's rights and also what happens to those rights when democracy begins to backslide. We'll have a lot more in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, there are other things that are going to affect your performance. And maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, 
and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts, and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're taking a look at what happens to women's rights in particular when democracy begins to backslide. And we're starting our analysis by looking at uh, the examples that bring this question into sharpest relief. What happened uh, with women's rights in the fascist regimes of Nazi Germany, Franco Spain, uh, and Mussolini's Italy? And I'm joined by Anne Winginter. She's a professor of history and women's studies at Loyola University Chicago's John Felice Rome Center. And she's with us from Rome, Italy. Uh, And professor, just before the break, you were talking about awards being given to women in Mussolini's Italy for having the most children. That reminded me, Nazi Germany had something similar, right? The motherhood cross. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about, again, how this then, uh, this sort of redefinition of womanhood um, in Mussolini's Italy was uh, was advanced through through laws uh, that the that the state passed. What are some examples? So there were, I, I would say, like a, a combination of sort of punitive pronatalist policies and then policies that were attempts to encourage and laws that were attempts to encourage raising of the birth rate. So, um, for example. Um, information about birth control, giving information about birth control became a criminal offense. Uh, Abortion, which had already been illegal, but largely, you know, not not very closely monitored, let's say, was criminalized uh, with women facing up to five years of of penal labor for um, consenting to abortion. Uh, there were child checks, so marriage loans to encourage early marriage, and those loans would be sort of progressively paid off with the birth of children. Uh, there was a tax on bachelorhood. There were job preferences given to um, married men over single men, men with children over men without children, men with multiple children over men with you know only a few children. Um, the aforementioned prizes for, um, you know, for, for having uh, large families, uh, thing, things of that nature. And then also um, quotas placed on women's employment because it was believed that, um, you know, women's employment and women's advancement in the workplace or in education were barriers to fertility. And so there were attempts to kind of limit the number of women in the workplace, limit women's access to um, high schools and to university. Now, there were small numbers of women achieving higher education at that time anyway, but uh, these these laws made it much, much more difficult. Well, and, and how rapidly were these laws passed in Italy? Well, um, they really begin, so, you know, we have to remember that Fascism is invented in Italy, mm-hmm. and you know, in its early years, they're they're kind of making it up as they go along. So there's there's a number of contradictions uh, in early fascism. Fascists, uh, you know, aren't really fully in control until the mid 20s, even though uh, the mid to late 20s, even though Mussolini first comes to power in 1922. But we see them acting very early on to try to. Um, well, Mussolini dubbed it the battle of births or the battle for births, right? So this attempt to uh, raise the birth rate and the passage of some of these first laws begins uh, in 1926, 1927, and then they'll be um, expanded upon as we move into the 
into the 1930s. Okay. Now, to, to go back to um, uh, what you were saying about or penalties around abortion, which, to be clear, as you said, wasn't wasn't legal uh, at the time already, but it wasn't necessarily something that had been, out, uh, I suppose, uh, overtly criminalized. Now, were, were, were also uh, doctors who were performing them or oh, absolutely. people who were giving them, providing information, were, were, were laws passed to, to, uh, to penalize those people as well? Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, there is a big push in this period to medicalize childbirth. I mean, childbirth still quite frequently happened at home, and uh, it was much more likely, particularly in, in rural areas, if women were attended at all, for them to be attended by midwives. And midwives became the subject of really close scrutiny because they were uh, believed to be sources of knowledge about preventing uh, or ending pregnancies. Uh, and there was, uh, you know, there were attempts, well, there was attempt, there was a kind of um, syndicalization of midwives uh, and really kind of an attempt to replace them with medical doctors where, wherever possible. And, you know, this was also, uh, you know, this was presented in some cases, you know, in fact did have um, a positive effect on the kind of hygienic conditions of, uh, of childbirth. Uh, but the motives behind it were really because, you know, women were suspect. Women, you know, miscarriages became something that had to be registered with the state and scrutinized um, because there was this belief that women were in, in some ways trying to control their their fertility, yeah. which which they were. So, so um, just to remind listeners, I mean, what we're trying to explore here is, is if a uh, uh, a, res- a restriction or tightening of women's rights is sort of a canary in the coal mine for for a general democratic backsliding in a country. And it's, you know, it, this, it may even be kind of a difficult um, thing to to find a perfect correlation in history, right? Because, I mean, we're talking about nations post-World War One and at the beginning of World War II, which were, which were already in a state, various state of political crisis because of the end of the First World War. I just want to note that, right? It's not, it's not a perfect... Um, uh, uh, correlation here, but what? No, you... absolutely not. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, please go ahead. Yeah. No, I just wanted to say also that you know one of the one of the problems with with trying to make a correlation with some of these earlier movements is that in in a lot of but not all places where where fascist regimes come to power, but in a number of places, you know, it, it, women didn't really have rights to lose mm-hmm. <laughs> or didn't have as many rights to lose, and they, you know what happened is that the gains that they were making and in, in which in some cases seemed inevitable were were quashed, right. uh, which is, you know, which is a which is alarming and it, it's comparable, I suppose. But but you know, in some ways, what we see today is even more alarming because we're seeing people really attempt to kind of actually turn back the clock on rights that have already been gained and that seemed to many of us to be to be you know, obtained, period, <laughs> not not in, in question. Right. So so let's talk about that then. How much would you say, given your knowledge of, of what has happened with women's uh, rights in, in history, uh, are, are changes in laws around abortion, um, et cetera, in the modern context, is it a canary in the coal mine for, je- for overall uh, democratic backsliding? I do think that um, the I, I, I think that uh, reproductive rights are an important uh, are an important sign uh, for democratic back- backsliding because I think they are a uh, a way in which the definition of the people in the whole notion of rule by the people gets narrowed, right? Uh, in, in the sense that, uh, sorry, I'm not being very clear, but in, you know, as long as we've had this kind of concept of democracy, right, this, of and by the people, a social contract among the people, there's been contestation of who gets to count as the people, right? And in some ways, the last century or more has really been about, you know, trying to define uh, the people and trying to. Um, you know, for, for various groups to trying to be admitted into full personhood. 
uh, and you know, fascism is is a is a rejection of the notion that um, you know of equality, of an expansive definition of the people, and it comes at a time where people are pushing the parameters of a of an existing definition, one that basically included, you know, males, often male property owners only. Um, you know, it was pushed back against expanding that definition uh, to to excluded groups. We, you know, what what we seem to be experiencing today, to me, it looks a, a lot like an attempt to define down mm. <laughs> that notion of the people again. Uh, and you know, some people get to be fully autonomous, and some don't. Right, and in, I mean, we're we're seeing that in various ways, right? I'm not I'm not saying that we have the rise of a fascist regime in the United States here, but you know, it was it's only very very recently that in for example in the state of Missouri there's um there's a proposal that would effectively, not directly, but effectively um uh, seek to bar women from leaving the state to seek an abortion. Uh, right, by, it would do to do so by penalizing anyone who provides information or assistance to that woman mm-hmm. from crossing state lines. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that the, it's it's the quick rise of laws and proposals like that in the United States. I think have many people wondering, like, how do we understand what the overall intent is or what the overall impact would be, and, and can we look at history to to see if there are any lessons to be learned, Professor? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think that there is, um, you know, you you start to get into questions of not even not even just intent of those laws. I mean, the, the intent of many of these laws, of course, is is to to end access to abortion. Um, but in 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 doing that, they're 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 discussing, you know, ending freedom of movement <laughs> for. Uh, for certain for certain people for for certain people of the female persuasion and 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 that should ring some alarm bells regardless of one's position on on reproductive rights. Um, I think that historically, you know, again, it's always the 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 you know the the, the drawing of historical parallels is always a, a tr- tricky situation, and you know, we historians really, you know, we. we we're not really equipped or trained as people who can predict the future, <laughs> certainly. Um, but I do think that, you know, the the degree to which we're willing to tolerate the removal of 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 a whole series of rights for people in defense of, um, you know, in defense of the, a, a, a full ban on abortion, or in defense of, you know, in the, in the pursuit of anti-crime, we want to mm. kind of remove rights because we see them as potentially preventative of crime. We have to really seriously question, um, you know, to what to what degree we're committed to democracy. Right, and this is why the example of in the, in the extreme example of fascist regimes seeing the purpose of womanhood as, uh, you know, to to be the vessel by which new children are created for the state. Again, that's at the far extreme, but mm-hmm. there are echoes in sort of the 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 idea that um, you know in in modern times with changes of with abortion laws that uh, the 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 woman's self is secondary to the fetus. Um, uh, so I mean, I mean, we we hear that explicitly in laws that have been passed just recently in the United States. I mean, here is Texas Governor Greg Abbott, in May of twenty twenty one, when he signed legislation banning abortions in Texas, um, as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. Our creators endowed us with the right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. In Texas, we work to save those lives. 
Texas Governor Greg Abbott last year. So it's laws uh, like that in Texas that have actually raised the concerns of uh, many uh, reproductive rights activists, including Gloria Steinem. Um, Here she is speaking with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly, also last year, December 9th, 2021. Controlling reproduction has always been the first step in any hierarchical or authoritarian government. Those who are authoritarian or hierarchical in their outlook in this, you know, still patriarchal time, look to control the one thing they don't have as the first effort in creating a hierarchy. It's Gloria Steinem speaking to NPR's Mary Louise Kelly in December of last year. Well, I'd like to bring into the conversation Erica Chenoweth now. Erica is a professor of public policy at Harvard University. Professor Chenoweth, welcome to On Point. Thank you. So first of all, respond to what you heard uh, Gloria Steinem there say in that cut that we pulled when uh, she was actually speaking last year. What do you think of her analysis of reproductive rights and authoritarianism? Well, I think that's exactly right. Um, You know, authoritarianism is a form of government in which um, there's an attempt to create centralized control um, and diminish political competition or, or severe, severely curtail it. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to manufacture or double down on existing hierarchies um, so that it's clear who's at the top and who isn't. And uh, one of the most uh, available of these hierarchies for anyone to draw on in any society uh, is the hierarchy between men and women um, or uh, between men and uh, other people. (laughs) So uh, people who don't identify as men, including um, people who are trans or uh, genderqueer. Mm. Now, you just recently wrote about this, right, in an article titled Revenge of the Patriarchs, Why Autocrats Fear Women. So tell me a little bit about what you, do you see a pattern, uh, a recent pattern in the United States? Well, yes. So this article was uh, co-authored with uh, Zoe Marks, And uh, what we were uh, doing in that article is trying to uh, report some of our own research about the fact that global waves of democratic progress uh, that occurred in the 20th century were largely driven by people power movements in which women played a crucial role. And um, in cases where women were featured prominently in anti-authoritarian or anti-colonial movements, Uh, like in uh, Brazil and Chile and Argentina and the Philippines, Nigeria, Palestine, Poland, uh, and uh, the Czech Republic, um, basically you see larger uh, progress toward egalitarian democracy um, compared to movements that were uh, largely driven um, or controlled by men. And uh, so what's really important about that research is that um, we find that actually fully empowered, politically active women have been a key driver of democracy around the world and uh, key drivers of gender equality around the world. Well, Professor Chenoweth, hang on here for a second. And Professor Winginter, stand by for a moment. We'll talk a lot more about this when we come back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're taking a look at whether Uh, women's rights and a restriction on those rights or change uh, in the view of those rights is an early harbinger of democratic backsliding uh, in modern countries 
including here in the United States. And I'm joined today by Anne Wingenter. She's a professor of history and women's studies at Loyola University Chicago's John Felice Rome Center. She's with us from Rome, Italy. And Erica Chenoweth joins us as well, professor of public policy at Harvard University. And Professor Chenoweth, I'd like to um, explore more with you about what what you see uh, currently in the United States and globally. And, and Professor Wingenter, I'm keeping you with us because having that sort of historical uh, context to go back to, I think, is going to really help us understand this moment now. But, but Professor Chenoweth, you've written that um, uh, women's political and economic empowerment is now stalling uh, around the world. Can you tell us what evidence you see of that? Absolutely. So um, there are really four key indicators of this that um, my co-author and I paid attention to, and we drew on research that's done elsewhere, including the Varieties of Democracy Project and the the Georgetown um, Women, Peace and Security Index. And um, really, there are four areas to pay attention to. The first is reproductive choice uh, and autonomy. The second is increased incidence of or tolerance for uh, domestic, sexual, and, and gender-based violence in a society. The third issue is um, basically uh, reduced access to political, economic uh, power and access to education. And the fourth area is uh, the reduction of or um, elimination of rights, recognition, and protection for sexual and gender minorities. And so we are seeing um, rollbacks in all four of those areas around the world and in the United States. Um, and I think that what's really important and intriguing right now is uh, that we have those types of rollbacks happening around reproductive rights and autonomy, around uh, laws that are reducing access to gender-affirming health care for trans children, laws trying to punish parents and families of trans children, um, laws trying to change school curriculum, Uh, to eliminate mentions of uh, gender and sexual minorities, um, information about women's health, uh, and uh, of course, uh, backlash against racial justice. Um, All of this is happening also in the context of pretty serious and uh, and disturbing challenges to access to the ballot, um, representation um, of uh, women at, uh, for example, uh, uh, election administration roles where they are overrepresented in numbers um, and, um, you know, a variety of other laws that directly affect democracy. So as you were mentioning earlier, um, it's really hard to untangle the causal direction, mm-hmm. like whether reductions in women's equality um, affect democracy or vice versa. And I think that's less important than just knowing that they're mutually reinforcing ills, Mm. that authoritarianism and patriarchy go together um, and women's equality and democracy go together. Mm. I mean, that's why you've written that it's not a coincidence in in your in you and your co-authors view of that uh, women's equality is in the in the places that you note in your paper are being rolled back at a time where those same places are seeing a rise in authoritarian governance. Exactly. Okay. Well, Professor Wingenter, you know, um, uh, Professor Chenoweth brought up something really important, and that um, that's more more broadly about um, family. And so, I I wanted to go back into history a little bit here, and and hear and listen and hear from you about how the regimes that you've studied in the past really put a particular definition of family at the center of. Uh, sort of why uh, women's roles were were shaped in the way they were. Sure, I mean, for you know, with with uh, the, with with fascism in Italy, certainly the family was defined as beginning only with the birth of, of children, right? So, and family uh, was understood to be a kind of um, you know, the, the fascists. One of one of the things that sort of um, fascist regimes have in common is this idea of, um, of of not recognizing the division between the public and the private sphere, right, which is kind of central to democracy ever since the Enlightenment, this idea that there's a public and a private sphere. Mm-hmm. And the fascists make um, concerted efforts to... Um, to control or to direct what happens even in the private sphere. So, you know, the family is understood to be uh, patriarchal, 
fight with the wife subservient to the husband or to his directives and decisions. In fact, when I mentioned before that one of the pronatalist incentives was to give job preference to men who had large families, and this is you know, revelatory of a view that it was the man who decided, right, what the, you know, how many children they would have, what the size of the family would be, and therefore, you know, was the man who could be rewarded or, 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 or punished accordingly. Um, and, you know, the, the, the family with the, the, the idea of the, the woman at the center of the family um, is also, you know, helps us understand why it became also so important to mobilize women in those in those public ceremonies because their presence was pointed to as a kind of symbol of the consent of the entire nation, right? So the family as the building block of the nation. I'm not sure if that's what you were getting mm-hmm. at, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no, answered your question. Yes, no. In fact, it did. And Professor Chenoweth, I'm wondering what you, what you hear in uh, Professor Winginter's response. Yes, I mean, I, I think that this resonates to a certain degree with what's happening in many of the states in the United States that are effectively trying to redefine the nation um, and who is in and who is out um, through different types of curricular changes um, and laws um, that are um, going, even if they don't have this intent, intent are going to have the effect of um, either erasing or, or kind of subjugating uh, large proportions of the population. Mm. So tell me more then uh, about, you, you were saying that in places where uh, women and other, uh, let's say, non-male identified groups have been very active in um, in seeking to advance rights, that those are places where um, democracies have historically become stronger over time. Because I think it's important for us to understand that to to get a sense as what's ha- to what's happening in in the American context today. Absolutely. So what we did is we actually examined hundreds of different uh, anti-authoritarian and anti-colonial movements during the post-war period through 2019. And what we found is that when women were represented uh, in large numbers in the front lines of those movements, they were much more likely to result in the toppling of those uh, authoritarian regimes or colonial regimes um, and the transition to more egalitarian democracy. And egalitarian democracy is important. It's a kind of democracy in which um, resources are more equally shared uh, and in which social groups have equal access to power. So it's sort of the vision of, in, in this country's terms, what a genuine multiracial uh, feminist democracy would actually look like. Um, and of course, um, it's important to point out that the project of uh, gender equality and the, pro- the project of uh, achieving egalitarian democracy has never been fully completed or equally shared around the world, but it's also important not to underestimate how much progress was made over the past hundred years toward those visions. And I think that um, you know what, what our research also shows is that when women participate in very large numbers in these movements, and they don't result in those breakthroughs. In other words, they don't topple um, the autocratic regime. Um, There is a much greater patriarchal backlash. So if you think about Turkey, for example, in 2013, there was a large uprising called the Gezi Park Uprising. It was uh, kind of notoriously um, inclusive of women and LGBTQ groups, students, people from all walks of life. And uh, in the aftermath of that movement, which failed um, to to create a democratic breakthrough in that country, in fact, uh, uh, Turkey has backslid uh, in democracy since then, kind of Mm -hmm. year over year. Um, We also see Erdogan and um, others in his government uh, beginning to roll back um, their commitments to expanding women's rights in basically every area. Um, There have been violent attacks on pride parades. Um, There have been all sorts of other uh, really um, uh, difficult and troubling trends um, that reflect exactly um, this issue of patriarchal backlash uh, coinciding uh, with authoritarian backsliding in a country that many people pointed to um, 20 years ago as a sign of genuine progress in the the global project of democratization. Mm -hmm. Well, Professor Winginter, 
I wonder if you could help us understand what the role of women was in upending uh, fascism, Italian fascism, since that's your area of expertise. Now, again, we had the Second World War right. here, but but internally to Italy, is there a story to be told about um, about women and the resistance there? No, oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, women uh, played key roles in in the Italian resistance movement. It, it's interesting because very often their involvement in the resistance, you know, came from not necessarily a um, a, a, a political background or a political conviction, um, but but from the the place that they had been relegated for the twenty years of fascism, like from the family, right, in support of uh, husbands, fathers, brothers, um, you know, lovers who had uh, taken up arms in the resistance, and they were very often um, instrumental in. Um, carrying supplies and bringing messages and um, in in some cases took up arms themselves, although that was rare, uh, but also organizing work stoppages and, and, and strikes and things like that. And when you read the memoirs of these women or listen to interviews with them, you find almost universally that they see their participation in the resistance as their political awakening, right? So it wasn't so much that they had these political convictions that brought them to protest. I mean, that was the case for some, but by, by, you know, by far the minority, but rather that it was in um, taking action against the fascists, against the uh, German occupiers during the last stage of the war, um, that that was the sort of discovery of democracy for them. Mm. Uh, and then that carries over into um, post-war political activity. Mm. You know, as we round to the last few minutes of the show here, Professor Chenoweth, I want to ask you something uh, about what Professor Winginter said at the very, very beginning of the program, because I can understand if a lot of listeners, um, you know, tuning in to the, to the program today or listening right now are feeling a sense of discomfort that we're even, you know, bringing together the idea of fascist Italy or Nazi Germany or fascist Spain um, and the treatment of women and other minorities in those regimes with uh, cultural and political shifts in the United States. It is an uncomfortable topic. I will grant that. But we have to sort of dwell in discomfort to understand what's going on now. But to be clear, I'm not I'm not saying there's a one to one comparison at all. Which is why there's something that Professor Winginter said earlier that I'd like to hear you on. Because she talked about how even before the creation of fascism in Italy, years before that, there was already a sense of a crisis of masculinity that may have been brought about even by the Industrial Revolution. I think we are seeing that same sort of perceived crisis of masculinity uh, amongst, you know, particularly uh, far-right groups in the United States now, right? There's a real focus on ma- on manhood uh, in, in America and recapturing some sense of um, the American man. Is there any echo there, Professor Chenoweth? Yes, well, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that uh, <laughs> when, when you were speaking about this earlier. Um, because there are certainly expressions of this. We've had um, a U.S. Senator Josh Hawley kind of have a a speech that he gave a few months ago where he talked exactly about the crisis of American manhood and the need to reclaim it. Um, And, uh, you know, Madison Cawthorn, who's um, a representative from North Carolina, um, you know, gave an interview a few months back in which he said that, Uh, He didn't want um, American families to raise soft children. He wanted them to raise their boys as, quote, monsters. Um, And, you know, there there is this um, attempt, I think, to uh, exactly redefine and strengthen the image of men in a certain way. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that this is um, exactly the same as what we saw uh, during the Industrial Revolutions. Um, kind of crisis of masculinity, but um, we certainly have a, a lot of people talking about it uh, in terms that uh, at least they seem to think uh, make it an existential struggle of their time. 
Um, and uh, certainly much of it, again, is, is backlash to um, what they perceive as um, and a sort of existentially threatening level of inclusion of, uh, of gender and sexual minorities in the country, in public life, um, and the ways in which they perceive that to, um, to be targeting um, mm. what they think of as the traditional man mm. and, and, and his role in society. Well, we have about one minute left. So, Professor Winginter, you're going to get the last word here. What's, what's the, the lesson or thought that you'd like listeners to come away with from from this analysis. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd like to just kind of pick up on what Professor Chenoweth was just saying, Chenoweth was just saying in that I mean, I think that this, you know, current crisis of masculinity, which I I, I certainly perceive um also in in movements that are taking place here in Europe, um you know, it it goes back to the attempts, many of them very successful over the course of the latter part of the 20th century, to expand that definition of the people, mm-hmm. right? To include the poor, to include ethnic and religious and linguistic minorities, to include women. And, you know, conceptually, that seems really simple. Okay, you're in. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you are giving people access to a system that was predicated on them not counting, that system itself has to be shaken. Uh, and, you know, I think we're, we're, you know, we're seeing some reaction against what it really means to, you know, to, to recognize the full personhood yeah. of all of these groups. Right. And, you right. know, people are threatened by it. Well, Anne Winginter, professor of history and women's studies at Loyola University Chicago's John Felice Rome Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Megna. And Erica Chenoweth, professor of public policy at Harvard University. Professor Chenoweth, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Megna. I'm Megna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.